Turn with me now in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we make our way through this glorious chapter on the topic of the resurrection, we come to verse 12, and I'd like to uh, begin reading there in verse uh, 12. It looks like your bulletin is incorrect, sorry about that. I'll start reading in verse 12 down to verse 20. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, in 1923, the mainline Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA, at their General Assembly, passed a motion that said in order for one to be ordained as a minister in the Presbyterian Church, he needed to affirm what they called the five fundamentals of the Christian faith. And you may be aware of those five fundamentals, first being the inerrancy of the scriptures, second, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the uh, authenticity of the miracles contained in Scripture, the substitutionary atonement, and for our purposes, most importantly, the bodily resurrection of Christ. 1923, as I said, the mainline Presbyterian Church said you needed to affirm those things if you wanted to be ordained as a minister, which prompted a response a year later that was known as the Auburn Affirmation. And in this Auburn affirmation, ministers who wrote it said, it's fine if you hold to those theories, as they called it, but they also pled for tolerance for other ministers to hold different theories about these things, such as the resurrection of Christ. If you read between the lines, what they're basically saying is, we want to be able to deny the bodily resurrection of Christ and yet still be members in good standing of the Presbyterian Church. Well, that Auburn affirmation eventually came to be signed by over 1,200 ministers in the mainline Presbyterian Church, which, if anything, indicated that the the victory of the fundamentalists the year prior was very short-lived. And that eventually set into motion what would become the formation of our own denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 19. 36. And one of the founding fathers of our denomination, J. Gresham Machen, wrote a book 
in response to these liberals who were urging that, that we can all hold different theories about the resurrection, he wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism, where his basic argument is, let's just be honest. When we're dealing with these issues, we're not dealing with a difference of opinion or a difference of interpretation, but what we're dealing with here are two fundamentally different religions. That's why he titled his book Christianity and Liberalism, this theological liberalism which denied, among other things, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, Machen urged, cannot be called Christianity. Well, Machen ultimately didn't come up with that on his own, and he recognized that this just wasn't a power play between conservatives and liberals, but ultimately what was at stake was the very heart of the gospel itself, and we see that being affirmed in our passage today. As the Apostle Paul takes to task those who were denying the resurrection, and he showed how it was a contradiction of the gospel. That's why he began our chapter by summarizing the gospel using four simple verbs that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. And as we saw last week, Paul chronicling these various appearances of our risen Lord to many people giving tangible proof of his physical resurrection, he appeared also to these men that were named Cephas and James and Paul, uh, 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 commissioning these men to proclaim that message of salvation, to continue the working of the risen Christ as he gathered his elect for whom he died as the Holy Spirit created faith in the hearts of the listeners. That's why Paul said in verse 11, this is what we preach, this is what you believe, this message of the gospel. And part and parcel of that message of the gospel is that Christ not only died for our sins, but that he has been raised, overcoming death. That's why Paul says in verse 12, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, that is the very heart of the gospel message, Itself, the bodily resurrection of Christ. And so that's why Paul says, if it's proclaimed that Christ has been raised, how is it? That is, how is it even possible that some of you are saying that there's no resurrection of the dead? Now, in more recent history, what we're used to are are, are people denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ, like those mainline liberals back in the 20s, or you know, even people today who suggest that Christ didn't literally physically raise, be raised from the dead. That's what we're used to, but it's interesting to note that it, that's not precisely what the people in Corinth were denying. They weren't necessarily outright denying the resurrection of Christ. What some of the people in Corinth were denying is what we call the general resurrection. The fact that at the last day when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will be raised and glorified together with him. And even the, those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up and changed to be conformed into our Lord's image. That's what they were denying, the bodily resurrection of believers at the last day. Now, we, went, we might question, Why? What was their motivation? Why were they denying the physical resurrection of believers at the last day? Well, there's many suggestions. You could read several articles uh, uh, where people are trying to get in behind, uh, get into the mind of the Corinthians, speculating why they would deny these things. But at the, at the end of the day, we're not told. 
But what, uh, regardless of, of what particular motivation these Corinthians may have had, I think ultimately it boils down to this. They had a very low view of our physical bodies. Ultimately, they felt that the, the real important part of our nature is our spirit or our soul, and that this physical body is ultimately what's bringing us down. That somehow physical things or material things are evil, and the good part of us is that soul, which ultimately, they said, would live on. And so that's probably the idea of the eternal life that they had, that we would live in heaven, uh, not in a physical state, but in a spiritual state. And we already saw some of the practical implications of this view, having a low view of our physical nature. Uh, We saw it, for example, in the licentiousness, which was expressing itself in Corinth. There were those who were saying that I can do whatever I want. And since our physical body isn't the real us, and since it's innately evil, then we can indulge our flesh doing all sorts of sinful practices, and somehow our spirit remains untouched. Well, on the opposite extreme, we saw a rigorous asceticism where there were those in Corinth, others, of course, who were saying that you needed to remain celibate even within the bonds of marriage. They were saying it is, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And so there you see the opposite extreme. But at the end of the day, they share the same view. They have a low view of the physical body. God has a different opinion of our physical body. In in the beginning, when he created us, he said, it's very good. And so scripture, time and time again, affirms the goodness of creation and the goodness of our physical bodies as being really who we are. And so, regardless of their precise motivation, what they were being influenced by, undoubtedly, was their surrounding Greek culture which also had a low view of the human body and ultimately viewed salvation as being freed from our physical bodies, which they called the prison house of the soul. If you read Plato, that's ultimately what he's getting at. You got to shed the physical body and let your soul arise to the heavens. And so they were influenced by this thought. And yet Christ takes, or sorry, Paul in, in, in this chapter takes them to task as he takes their view, a denial of the general resurrection at the last day, and and logically he takes their step, he takes their view one more step. He says in verse 13, if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. Categorical denial of the resurrection necessarily also entails denial of Christ's resurrection. If we're not going to be raised... If there is no resurrection of the dead, then that means Christ hasn't been raised. But it's important to note here for Paul, this is is not just a logical deduction, but a theological deduction. You see, for Paul, our resurrection at the last day and the resurrection of Christ some 2,000 years ago are one and the same event. If it happened to Jesus, it most certainly will happen to us. That's why he calls Christ, in verse 20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in Christ. See, boys and girls, in the, in the Old Testament law, the Jews were commanded 
that as soon as it was harvest time, as soon as fruit began to appear on the trees or grapes on the vine or grains in the fields, what they would do is they would take the, the very first gleanings of the harvest and they would offer that up to the Lord. That was called the first fruits. It would be given to God as, as, as a token of thanksgiving for the rest of the harvest. And even though the first fruit gleaning uh, uh, happened before the rest of the harvest, it was one and the same event. It was the same harvest. The first fruit was part of the, over, of, of the whole harvest season. And so even though Christ was raised some 2,000 years ago, even though our resurrection is yet in the future, as far as the Apostle Paul is concerned, it's the same event. If it happened to Jesus, it most certainly will happen to us. He teaches that very clearly in Romans chapter 8 when he says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your moral bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's the same work of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection at the last day. And so Paul takes that logic. That if it happened to Jesus, it most certainly will happen to us, and he turns it on its head. If it's not going to happen to us, then it didn't happen to Jesus. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And so starting in verse 14, he begins to list the dire consequences of denying the resurrection. The logical implications of what it means if you deny the fact that at the last day we will be changed. First and foremost, in verse 14, he says that our preaching is in vain. In other words, it's for nothing. It's completely fruitless. This word translated vain is the same word we saw in verse 10, where Paul says that the grace of God that he gave to me was not in vain. And it's the same word that he says at the very last verse of the chapter when he says that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And yet here he says that if Christ has not been raised, then it's all in vain. The preaching of Christ, which is uh, the preaching of the gospel, which as he already said, is the power of God unto salvation. As he so eloquently defended in chapters one and two, the foolishness of the cross is the power of God, whereby we are made alive. But if the one who had been crucified remained in the grave, then it's all powerless. The preaching is in vain. And as he says, since preaching creates faith, vain preaching creates vain faith. He says, your faith also is in vain. Since your faith is only as good as what you put your faith into. All of you, when I told you to please be seated, you sat down, you put your faith in that chair. You trusted that that chair would be able to hold your weight. And so far, so good. But if that chair was broken... No matter how much you believe that the chair would hold you up, you would fall. And so it is that no matter how much we would like to believe that Christ has been raised, if he is still in the tomb, we are putting our faith in a dead man. And Paul says it's in vain. So faith is not the power of positive thinking. It's not wishing upon a star. It is only as good as what you put your faith into. So he says there, our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain. Moreover, in verse 15, Paul says, you're calling me a liar. 
He says we would be found to be misrepresenting God. Literally, we would be found to be false witnesses. Again, this legal context, Paul and the apostles serving as eyewitnesses to testify to the truth of the resurrection. Paul would say that we would be found to be false witnesses, liars, because we all clearly testified that Christ has, in fact, been raised. You see, here for the apostle Paul, truth actually matters. It's not whatever you want it to be. He draws a line in the sand and he says, has has God raised Christ from the dead or not? Both cannot be true. Contrary to the signature, the, the signatories of the Auburn affirmation way back in the in the early 20s, in the 20s. We both we can't just all get along. We can't tolerate these views where one affirms the bodily resurrection and the other flat out denies it. So repeating what he said in verse 13, we see in verse 16, he comes back to the fact that if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And he says, in your faith is futile. Now this echoes what he said back in verse 14 when he says, your faith is in vain. Uh, and, And there the idea was that your faith would be useless since it would be empty, being placed in a dead man. Here, the idea in verse 17, when he says your faith is futile, the idea is that it's worthless since it would accomplish nothing. Absolutely nothing. And as a case in point, he says you would still be in your sins. You see, we place our faith in Christ who died for our sins on the cross, bearing the curse which we all deserve. And we all know that the wages of sin is death. But if Christ is not raised, if he's still dead and remaining in the tomb, then that would mean that death would still have power over him. And that, therefore, would mean that either he himself was a sinner and he got what was coming to him, or his sacrifice was not sufficient, that his blood was not of infinite value to be able to atone for the sins of his people. You see, we need to understand the resurrection of Christ as a historical event, but also as the verdict of God. God making a declaration about Christ that he was not just innocent, free from guilt, but positively righteous. That's why he, had, he was glorified. And this is what we get in that blessed double exchange that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the good news of the gospel that all hinges on that verdict of God that his son was positively righteous as is demonstrated in his physical resurrection and glorification. And yet, taking a step back, if he wasn't raised, then that means he either was a sinner, his sacrifice wasn't sufficient, but regardless of that, we are still in our sins. We still have to deal with our guilt. And if that's the case, if we still have to deal with our sin and guilt then the immediate next question is, well, wait a minute. What about our loved ones who have gone on and before us who have already died? What about them? 
Well, Paul talks about them in verse 18. He says that those who have fallen asleep. This idea, uh, this, this notion of falling asleep is a biblical euphemism for the death of the believer. And it's important that Paul uses that term exclusively. He reserves it exclusively for the believer who has died. This isn't just Paul not wanting to use the word death because it's an ugly word. We often do that today. We say that somebody has passed on or they're no longer with us. We don't like to use that word death because it's such an ugly word, and rightly so. No, Paul uses this term fallen asleep to refer to the death of the believer because there's implicit logic in that term that if they've fallen asleep, then they'll wake up. Right? All of you went to bed last night expecting to wake up in the morning, and you did, at least most of you. Some of you have fallen back asleep. <laughs> no, the idea here is that uh, death is called falling asleep for the believer because it's not a permanent state. That was clearly the case of uh, Jesus' friend Lazarus when he told his disciples, uh, uh, Lazarus has fallen asleep, and they, and they thought, well, great, if he's fallen asleep, he'll get better. And Jesus says, no, no, he died, but I'm about to raise him. And the idea, same idea here for the believer. Elsewhere, Paul teaches that absence from the body is presence with the Lord. And, and, and that being absent from the body, that is being in this state where our soul is in the presence of the Lord, is far better than our present existence. That's why he can say in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's better because we are at home with the Lord. But if Christ is not raised and we're still in our sins, then the only thing the believer who has, who has futile faith and faith that is in vain, the only thing that we have to look forward to as we face death is a certain fearful expectation of judgment. That's why Paul says, for those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they have perished, or literally, they've been destroyed. This is the same word that's used to describe the torments of hell that the unbeliever will face. And so we do not find comfort in death if Christ has not been raised. We are still under the power of our final enemy, and having to deal with our own sins have nothing to look forward to but judgment. And then summing up his argument, he says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only. That is, if our hope is placed in Christ only for earthly benefits that we can receive in the here and now, since clearly there's nothing to look forward to in the life to come if Christ has not been raised. If that's the case, Paul says, we of all men are most to be pitied. You see, contrary to popular belief, Jesus did not come so that you might have your best life now. Christianity does not make your existence on this earth any easier. If anything, it makes it more difficult. Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to suffer, and now he invites us as his followers to take up our cross daily and deny ourselves. And as we look forward to the glorification that Christ will bring to us, we need to keep in mind that that glorification hinges on the fact that we are presently suffering together with him. 
Paul teaches that very clearly in Romans chapter 8 when he says we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may, be, that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, don't get me wrong. The Apostle Paul's not minimizing the peace of conscience or the joy in the Holy Spirit that we presently experience. Certainly, there's many benefits that we as Christians experience in the here and now in this life. It's not all doom and gloom. But even those benefits that we experience now, even those hinge on the fact that Christ has been raised. And if there is no glorification to look forward to, then all we're left with are the sufferings of this present life. And that's why Paul says we are most to be pitied. As bad as your life is right now, there's always somebody who has it worse. That's what... My, uh, one of my former professors, Dr. Robert Godfrey, said, it's Calvinist comfort. Things can always be worse. Well, that's not the case if Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then we of all people are most to be pitied. We have it the worst because we, are, we have believed a false message. We have vain hope. We have uh, been misrepresenting God. We're still in our sins, and the only thing we have to look forward to is eternal punishment in hell. That's a pretty bleak picture. By taking his opponent's view to their logical conclusion, the Apostle Paul ruthlessly exposes the completely unacceptable and dire consequences. And ultimately, his appeal, like the appeal of J. Gresham Machen, back in the 20s, is an appeal for intellectual honesty. Look, if you're going to deny the physical resurrection of Christ, don't, believe, don't pretend that you can still be a Christian. Don't give, pay lip service that you still affirm the gospel if you say that Christ has not been raised. You've got to appreciate the Apostle Paul's honesty as, as later on in verse 32. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection, Paul says, let's just party. It's it's total nihilism. Enjoy it while you can, because there's nothing to look forward to. That is the, the intellectual honesty that the Apostle Paul wants of his opponents as they're denying the resurrection. And we see its dire consequences. Well, I would be remiss as a New Covenant preacher if I were to end the sermon here. All of us would walk away, glum, knowing the drastic, dire consequences of denial of the resurrection, but you got to appreciate the turn that the Apostle Paul takes in verse 20 when he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so let us briefly conclude our our consideration of this passage as we... uh, 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 as we meditate briefly upon the logical consequences of the fact that Christ has been raised, this clear affirmation of a historical fact which negates all that had been said before. You see, just as denial of the resurrection of Christ changes everything, so ought also its affirmation. So do we really believe 
that the tomb is empty? Do we really believe that Christ has overcome death and conquered death through his resurrection? Do we realize that the same spirit who gave him life also dwells in our mortal bodies as a guarantee that we will be glorified together with him? Are we conscientiously aware that, we, that he will come again and destroy all his and our enemies and that the last enemy to be destroyed is death? Do we really believe that the sufferings of this life are not worth comparison with the glory that awaits the sons of God? Do we live lives that are consistent with the fact that all things will be put in subjection to God so that he may be all in all? May God grant to his faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel and live lives that are consistent with the fact that we have been raised with Christ. Amen.